Right, let's get started. You're recording, right? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Oh, good. Right. Welcome to episode 23. 23. Is there uh, any kind of special anniversary for a 23rd? I don't think there is, but it's going to be a very special one for us. Right. Because, uh, well, well, this is where we make the announcement, isn't it? This is it. Oh, yeah, the band is splitting up. The band is splitting up. Yeah. Well, we always said this probably wouldn't last forever, and uh, it's not going to. Um, probably for the listeners and the students, we should clarify that uh, what that means is I have taken a new job. Um, still at UCLan. I'm not leaving the university, but I am leaving Asia Pacific Studies. So I'll be doing quite a different role. So for that reason, I don't, I mean, I never really had time to do this anyway, but um, I definitely don't have time to do this anymore. So this is, this is it. This is going to be the last one. Um, can so. I interject here? Because actually I have something to kind of say on this. I just want to take this as a genuine moment. I think in the past you have often uh, often done it for me, but I want to take this moment to congratulate you, mate. I think it's uh, well well deserved. And it's, a, it's a, a pleasure for me to be able to have someone like you in such a position. So well done, mate. Thank you, mate. I appreciate that. That is a uh, that's genuinely kind of you to say. Yeah. Maybe we do a reunion in the future. Only if the money's there, mate. I mean, I say all the nice things, but I do still feel abandoned. To be fair. Yeah. Well, you you should. I mean, I'm mainly leaving to get away from you. Oh yeah. I mean, even though that your office is still actually next door to mine. Well, yeah, but not that we can actually use our offices. No, that's also very true. Oh. Ah, anyway, you—it was your—you you left the band, not me. Just for everyone, I, I left the band. I yeah. am, as you put it to me the other day, I am indeed the Jerry Halliwell of this operation. You, you are <laughs> that that you are that you are. But you know what? You know we we I may I may continue this band without you. You think you can have a solo career? No, I didn't say that. I mean, maybe I replace you. Okay. <laughs> right, that's more likely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I still need someone to do all the editing. And to, to be honest, the pod needs two things. It it does need you because otherwise, something in Nick on the Asia Pacific. That's the rhyming. So that's why it does need you. But it needs someone who can actually do the editing, and that's that's obviously not going to be you. No. So someone who can edit pods and is willing to tolerate you for a couple of hours every so weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe just adver- advertise. Yeah. yeah. Put in the applications. I mean, I'm open. So this is it. This is it. This is so far from the end. This is a new beginning for somebody and Nick on the Asia Pacific applications in at UCLan, please. Yeah. Right. Should we? Uh, should we do the pod? Yeah, we may as well as we're here talking. So, we should we should do our last ever feedback on the last pod. If you recall, we were talking about uh, K-pop, and in fact, uh, you went on to write an op-ed yeah. about uh, the political movement of K-pop fans, and you also talked about the fact that the music is not particularly political, and yet the fan groups have become very political and very politically active and you expressed a hope that it would stay that way we then also said hang on a minute we're very out of touch with k-pop we don't know what we're talking about is it true 
Martha Housen got in touch to say, your assumptions on K-pop are correct. If songs are political, they tend to just cover the heavy expectations of young people in Korean society. There is a theory that... I'm going to pronounce this one wrong. Mamacita? Is it Mamacita? Yes, Mamacita. By Super Junior, criticises Park Geun-hye's presidency. And she goes on to say, I never knew the line, just close your lips, shut your tongue, had such political weight. Yeah, yeah. close your lips, Ed. <laughs> Definitely leaving that in. <laughs> Um, Dr. Sojin Lim also uh, got in touch to clarify, yes, it would indeed be illegal for those uh, for people to carry those leaflets back to the UK, as we suggested that people should, so that we could have one. Um, I'd still give it a try. <laughs> on that, did, did you see the suggestion that some of the leaflets actually depicted Kim Jong-un's wife yeah. in a pornographic film? Yeah, with Moon Jae-in. I, oh, that's right. Yeah, yes. DVD covers. I DVD. Covers, I really yes. want one of them. Do you? Oh, just something to have. You know, put it on the wall. You know. You put it on the wall. <laughs> don't don't leave that in. I'm gonna leave it. Yeah, I'm leaving it. In. Right. Well, I mean, don't say stuff like I'm gonna put pornographic pictures on my wall if you don't want people to hear that. <laughs> it's uh, not like you don't know you're being recorded. Uh, uh, so we should start with um, Hong Kong. Yes. So, um, what do we want to say about Hong Kong? Nick? So, I mean, the big thing is, I mean, we probably don't have to go over all of the details of the story. Um, the new security law came into force. Yeah. Um, coinciding with the anniversary of the handover. Um, Twenty-three years. Wow. I know. Yeah. Not even halfway through the fifty years, eh? Not even halfway through. No, still 27 years to go. And, uh, well, it's all changed, hasn't it? Um, yeah. uh, what was very noticeable was within hours of that coming into force, there were quite a number of arrests. Yeah. Um, not all of them under the auspices of this law, uh, but related to protests about this law taking place in Hong Kong. There's been a number of other developments as well. Um, both Canada and Australia have um, po paused? Do we say paused? They've put a hold on? I think they've rem their... completely removed it. I don't think they paused it, did they? Have they should we say they pulled out? Have they pulled I've... out of their extradition arrangements? Yeah, they have. I mean, they, well, they cancelled it, haven't they? Right, so they've cancelled their extradition arrangements with Hong Kong um, on the grounds that uh, it's no longer safe to extradite people to Hong Kong because they could then be extradited to China, yeah. uh, to mainland China. So... Um, yeah, big developments. The British government has uh, followed through with its promise. Yeah. Um, and in fact, there was a little, I say a little detail, it's quite an important thing. that it, So initially they said that the offer of, uh, it's, not, it's not immediate citizenship, no. but it's a route to citizenship because it is the right to live and work in the UK for up to five years, at which point you're entitled to apply for citizenship, provided you meet all the other criteria such as not committing any criminal offences during that time, then there's no reason you wouldn't be given the citizenship. So there is a pathway for citizenship for all of those people with a British overseas passport from Hong Kong. But it also includes their dependents. Yeah. So one of the things that concerned people was that this wouldn't help anybody out who was born after 1997, because they wouldn't have been entitled to one of those passports. But if they were born to somebody who has one of those passports, then yeah, it does actually yeah. help them out. Yeah, and yeah. it's up to three million people, right? 
potentially well, it could be more right yeah no it you're could right be even more with the dependence but yeah but it yeah. is a, it, which is but i was just gonna say i mean it's it is a remarkable thing it's a it is a considering where this country has been in terms of its political debate over the last few years with brexit yeah. um and uh you know brexit wasn't entirely about immigration and we sometimes um caricature the debate no. in that but respect. in many ways it but, did inform a discussion on brexit didn't oh, it? No, oh no i mean absolutely that, that that's the thing is it was it was clearly a big part of the political landscape over the last few years and so for a tory government to be the one uh, opening the door yeah. to millions of people coming in yeah. um and there are other countries around the world australia canada um new zealand the us have all talked about um providing sanctuary for people coming out of hong yeah. kong which uh i think i said something like this before but it's it's i'm glad i'm very glad that those countries are doing that yeah. but what a terrible terrible choice for a number of people in hong kong to have to make i mean that's the decision you have to make to leave your home with no realistic prospect of ever being able to go back no. um, and that's and that's not just a case of having to get used to living somewhere else i mean you've probably got established well you will have established networks of friends relatives business education all of these things that that make up your home you have to make the choice to abandon them or continue well living in a very very different hong kong yeah i just want to kind of pick up on a few things that you kind of said there i think first of all i thought one of the things i found quite remarkable is that there was no opposition at all within parliament to this mm. you would i mean again with the political climate that we are some of the areas of which that we have seen elected mps right and the positions that they stand on on issues of such as immigration um I, I did feel it quite remarkable that there really wasn't any kind of real objection within parliament when this was being being tabled mm. um I, I that that stood out actually i thought that was quite remarkable i did obviously ask the question um you know internally whether or not that we would have had a similar discussion had other areas of the former british empire been under conversation about this whether or not we would have seen the same outcome my my fears are perhaps not right but um mm. but we don't know um but yeah um you know other thoughts on this um you know, although the law, the new security law is kind of very clear in, you know, what's covered by these, actually, there's a lot of nuance that can be within what does it mean by, you know, terrorism, foreign involvement, subversion, right? Um, and the the manner in which that actually to voice, say, an, a, a conversation on an independence for Hong Kong. Now, outside of Hong Kong, very much what we were talking about with the changes to extradition laws being made by other countries, does put into light just how far the reaches of this could potentially go. So if, for example, you were perhaps say a Hong Kong citizen, maybe one of these group, I mean, the UK would have to kind of make these similar changes. If it's to take in, say, a number of people from Hong Kong based upon the new legislation that's being put into place. And one of those people here was to make a, a very vocal public viewpoint on its positions towards, you know, the independence for Hong Kong. Um, under this new, under the four more previous extradition laws, I mean, that person could be extradited from the UK back to Hong Kong for the very reasons that they left. So 
Um, it is interesting when we start to break down the countries that do have only this extra extradition law with Hong Kong and not say with China itself, whether or not that they would, um, they would put their, you know, whether they themselves wouldn't be making these changes like we've seen mm. with Canada. I, I, I think that's a very kind of interesting kind of twist to the story, really. Uh, and building on that, one of the things that we speculated slightly on this yesterday, um, we're talking about the, I mean, Hong Kong is this hub for finance, but not just for finance. It's sort of the major place for headquarters for um, foreign owned business that stretches across East Asia or even the whole of Asia. I mean, it's kind of the place, it's not the only place, but it's one of the places where you'd be likely to put your headquarters because it's been this tremendous trading hub over the last uh, half century or more. So I guess the question there is that you've got a, a lot of uh, non-Chinese, non-Hong Kong people living and working there and they will now be raising questions about whether that is a place that they want to be. And the businesses and the organisations will also be having to ask that question themselves as well. Certainly, I think if you were looking for a place to build, like if you started with a blank sheet of paper now, and you need to put your headquarters in Asia, you're not going to put it in Hong Kong. And there will be, I mean, there's obviously there's a cost attached to it, and it will depend on what kind of links any of these organizations or businesses have with mainland China. You probably don't want to be seen to be too overtly political and anti-Chinese if a good portion of your market is in China. That's a dangerous game to play. So I, I wouldn't suggest there'd be a huge exodus from Hong Kong, but there will be major organizations that think they need to move their headquarters or start to gradually get yeah. out of there. Um, so yeah, I, that will be something that's worth watching. Yeah, but also very interesting, those who potentially might go there. Um, so one of the ones of which that I has got me thinking would be um, like HSBC, right? So HSBC, which was Hong Kong, which was headquartered in Hong Kong, is now headquartered in London and that, um, yeah. but because was it three, I think, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong on the statistic, but I think it's something like three fourths of its business is within China. Um, it or, is something like that. It's a majority yeah, of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and an actual fact that, um, you know, so the threats that were being put forward um, as a result of if the UK goes through the pathway of granting this rights to towards citizenship, um, you know, I think uh, HSBC was one who came out quite early, didn't it, in its support for the new security law. Um, so it'd be quite interesting to see whether or not that, you know, in amongst this, you know, movement out of Hong Kong, whether we are going to see certain corporations moving their head offices back just simply because mm. it's the majority of its businesses is in China. And actually, that would be a way of protecting its business by just being silent on on, on the other yeah. issues. Yeah, I was listening to something about HSBC the other day. Uh, and I, I hadn't realised exactly the timing of when they moved from Hong Kong back to London, uh, but it was 1993 yeah. that they moved, uh, which obviously is a few years, like four years before the handover, and uh, clearly everyone knew that the handover was coming at that point, but it was, it was also linked to the fact that they bought uh, Midland mm -hmm. Bank, which was huge in the UK, so it made more sense to move back to London now, but obviously the, the things have changed, and their focus is much more over there, so that that is going to be a consideration. This feeds into that discussion that we've been having over the last few weeks about uh, the the seemingly oncoming 
new Cold War. I don't know. I've been thinking. I've got to come up with a better phrase for this. It's just calling it like Cold War Two or New Cold War is it's lazy and doesn't necessarily bring into all the nuances of this because the interconnections between China and the US or China and the Western world, yeah. they're much greater than we ever had between the Soviet Union and the United States or the, or the communist bloc and the capitalist bloc. So it isn't it isn't as simple as saying we just got the same situation as we used to have, yeah. but we have got this new great power rivalry in which uh, countries and organisations are having to pick sides. Yeah whether that's overtly or at least demonstrated by their actions, such as HSBC needing to seriously consider moving back to Hong Kong. Yeah. A lukewarm conflict rather than a... A lukewarm a conflict. conflict. <laughs> <laughs> a, a, a chilly discussion. Um, shall we move on from Hong Kong? Yeah, shall we carry on talking about China? Well, I think just just that this so Hong Kong is part of something bigger that's happening, right? And I think we've talked about a number of these things. I kind of wanted to revisit them slightly um, to think about this, so we're not just focusing on. I don't want to downplay Hong Kong, uh, but it, it, there's something much bigger and much broader taking place, and Hong Kong is a is a really stark example of what's happening. So we talked recently about the border clash between China and India. Now, that's been very interesting to see the fallout from that. The brutal nature of what happened. And, you know, we, we I mean, we talked about how horrific that was. Um, but the questions about why that happened are really interesting. There is a there was a rumor um, which I sent to you over Facebook. I don't I don't think this has been well established, but there is a rumor that China or so there is a report that China has now gone in across the border with Nepal and occupied a Nepalese village. A Nepal Nepali? Nepalese. Nepalese village. <laughs> that's that's Nepaling. <laughs> um so there's 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 something happening here with China and I it is part of this new Cold War or whatever we're gonna end up calling it. Um but it's it's specific to this time and this moment and China taking an opportunity which has come its way. I've always seen China's foreign policy as being very pragmatic, certainly since uh, since the end of the Mao era. It's been a very pragmatic Chinese foreign policy. So when we had the era of, we had the era that is so characterized by that so-called phrase of uh, Taoguang Yanghui, which is frequently translated as hiding your hiding your capabilities or keeping a low profile uh, and sort of the, the the implication behind that is it's sort of just generally not stirring the pot not causing a fuss not interfering too much and allowing china the space to sort of grow and develop and that's that was a perfectly reasonable sensible well a very pragmatic thing for china to do in the 80s and into the 90s and that it, we that has been changing since since the 1990s really it's sort of the early to mid 1990s when china just began very slowly to become a bit more active and a bit more involved in the international system and a bit more willing to have a voice. Um, but when we look at more recently, these challenges to things that have previously been settled in the past, they are more and more. And the point I wanted to make was that this is about pragmatism. So pragmatism isn't just about sort of not wanting to cause a fuss and not, not creating, not, not picking fights that you don't need to have. That is a pragmatic approach. But another aspect of pragmatism is 
spotting an opportunity to change things that you would like to change. So China would like to have greater control across that border with India. It would like to have more influence in regional affairs and it would like to push the United States further away and further outside of it, what it sees as its sphere of influence. The opportunity to do that is right now. So I don't buy into the conspiracy theories about China developing the coronavirus as a, a, a way to bring down the West. I absolutely don't. But it is an opportunity. The US is in chaos right now because of the coronavirus and China isn't. And so at the result of that is the US is far too focused in on itself and not really focused. In addition, you've got Donald Trump, who has just been, I mean, he's explicitly a non-internationalist and has undermined, consistently undermined US alliances. I mean, not just in East Asia, but around the world, but, but specifically in East Asia. And this has been an opportunity for China to act. Now, it's more active right now for the two reasons of the coronavirus causing so much of a distraction in the United States, but also the fact that Donald Trump is hopefully going to lose the election in a few months' time. So they've got a window, and it's it, it, the window is going to close, because sooner or later, the US will get a grip on coronavirus, and probably in November, it's not guaranteed, but probably in November, Trump will lose the election. And at that point, things will change. Um, I think it's very interesting, everything you said, and obviously this is stuff that we, we have discussed outside of the pod. Um, but I do think um, one of the kind of things, is more of a kind of question, because I don't really necessarily have an answer to this. It's very, very clear. What has been very clear, particularly over the past four years, is that there is a vacuum within the region that's been left by the inadequacies of Trump and, and, and by extension, US foreign policy. Um, that China had... China is obviously seizing a moment, seizing an opportunity to to find ways to fill that void. Um, but I wonder why it's decided to do so so in such an aggressive way, um, because foreign policy is not always about hard power, right? Um, a significant part of it is soft power, um, and I I wonder why. It, it has chosen to engage with these areas of which that gaps have beginning to appear in such aggressive ways. So soft power, if there is such a thing as soft power, and I'm not 100% certain, I, somebody asked me a number of years ago to identify one explicit foreign policy goal that had ever been met using soft power. And it's an interesting thing. To do. I eventually did come up with an answer. It's not clear cut. So I came up with the answer that uh, the development of liberal democracy in Eastern Europe was an explicit foreign policy goal of Western European governments, which was achieved through the soft power of the attraction of membership of the European Union. The point that I was going to make is that if soft power is a thing, then it's a long term thing. It's not something that you can employ over the course of six months to achieve an aim. Hard power, the threat or the use of military force, is something which can achieve a goal in a short period of time. I'm not advocating right. military intervention. No, 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 no you're not. That yeah. if you invade a country, you can subdue it in theory in a short period of time and achieve a foreign policy objective. No, I mean, I get, I mean, I get, I get what you're saying. It's just, it just, it is quite remarkable that it has chosen. I mean, I don't know. I mean, this is what, again, going back to the conversation that we had yesterday, but whether or not that he's just simply overplayed his hand now, that it is decided to put its 
its aggressive stance in just too many corners of its boundaries. There is the other side of this. I will answer that question. The other side of this is that um, there's a calculation in there. So China spent did spend a long time working on its soft power, right? I mean, it did it particularly around Southeast Asia. It worked very hard to improve its reputation around those countries, and a huge chunk of that has gone out of the window. But that went out the window a few years ago when China started its operations in South China Sea. And so at a point where they'd made, I mean, maybe it was a misjudgment. Maybe they hadn't quite understood how much that would impact the soft power and the, the reputation. But once you've done that and you think, okay, well, that that's already gone, right? So the soft power thing is already gone. Well, we've nothing to lose. So it doesn't it doesn't matter. I mean, if, if China is already viewed as being um, aggressive or assertive, depending, I guess, on your perspective, and not necessarily uh, the great friend that everyone wanted it to be, but can still be something you can engage with and something you can work with because of the size of its economy. Uh, I mean, that that's still not a bad position for China to find itself in, in which case it doesn't really have anything to lose um, and potentially does have stuff to gain by demonstrating its willingness to be, let's call it assertive rather than aggressive. No, I, yeah, I can see your point. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's very interesting. It's just there are multiple ways in which they could have approached it and this is the way that they have mm. chosen. Um, and it's whether or not that it's just overplayed yeah. it. I, I, time will tell. Um, I think, I think it's situa- I think the situation in uh, in Hong Kong could well have been a a, a case of severely overplaying his hand. Um, but I think, yeah, uh, we're we, we're watchers. We're watch- we, yeah. I mean, it, it, the question of overplaying his hand it depends on what you're trying to achieve, right? So. Yeah, I mean, I, I I wonder a great deal about this, and I, I worry a lot about the future of Hong Kong. Um, but because we we I think we said the last time or a couple of pods ago that with this law, Hong Kong basically becomes just like any other Chinese city. Um, but it could become less in so many ways because uh, obviously it it, it 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 was a financial hub. I mean, we've spoken about the possibility that it might lose. Not no, we don't know how much, but it might do. I mean, so. For China to have gained this, it, to, it has demonstrated that it is prepared to put parts of its economy on the line in order to achieve its goals, which was always a question in other areas of mm. which we watch China that they wouldn't. They wouldn't. They would never risk this much to this much in their economy to make these particular gains. I think this has potentially demonstrated that actually they are prepared to parts of their economy at risk in order to them to get the political gains they want. Um, uh, yeah, let's see how it goes. Just bear with me a second. Yeah. Lunch is ready. So Ed can't come out to play because his lunch is ready. <laughs> I think she's going to bring my lunch up in a minute. So I'm going to sit and eat noodles while we record the pod. So, so Christopher Ray, the director of the FBI, he said this the other day and said that his quote was, China is engaged in a whole-of-state effort to become the world's only superpower by any means necessary. And I think the, just the point I just wanted to make about that is that just on one level, it doesn't matter whether or not we're right. So when we're talking about this looks like it's developing into the new Cold War or whatever term we're ever going to come up with, that is the mindset of policymakers in both the United States and in China. And that's informing the decisions that are being made. And that, I think helps to answer one of the questions that you're asking which was about why china is choosing to be so aggressive and to be this in this way so my lunch has just arrived so you're, you're probably gonna have to take the lead on the next story whatever we do 
Okay, so the next kind of uh, story I think we should pick up on is the news yesterday on the death of Park Wonsoon, the sole mayor. And uh, yeah, I mean, he was elected in 2001. Um, and so he was the first mayor to have been voted for a third time back in June of last year. Um, many had considered him in many ways as a possible potential presidential hopeful for the Liberals in any kind of forthcoming kind of election. Um, he was kind of well known for his clashes with Park Geun-hye um, and, uh, he, you know, very much seen uh, for his philanthropic work. Um, so, so for many quarters, um, he obviously, you know, stood out as a, as a shining star, educator at London School of Economics before going back to, to Korea. Um, but the, the news of his, um, of his death um, came on back of a a moment where he knew that I think it was his secretary, wasn't it, um, who was going to file for sexual harassment. Um, and obviously, you know, without kind of knowing the details of the case, obviously we can speculate on this. But it is obviously very interesting that shortly after it became known that you know that she was going to be filing for this, um, he disappeared and then was later found dead. Yeah, so it is huge news. Like you, I struggle to have an opinion about it. I mean, I can have an opinion about it. I struggle to know what I can comment about it um, because it's so fresh. Um, it's obviously many layers to it. It's the sort of thing where I think if we were to, if we were actually carrying on with this pod, we'd probably say that's something to watch out for for next time. But Yeah, I, I could do with whoever the new person might be. That's it. My yeah. new band member. Who who do you who, who do you think it should be? I mean, I don't want to somebody who's I competent mean, uh, with technology. Yeah, Tihan. Tihan's quite good. Tihan and Nick on the Asia Pacific. I don't want you to have an input in this. I mean, you you decided to leave the band. The, the band's decisions are now being made. Oh, I still own I still own the copyright, mate. Also, I've got the password for the Spotify account. So moving on, other things that came in the news. Uh, so a very interesting thing, um, particularly obviously for my research, was the genetic find of the Polynesian encounter with Native Americans. Obviously Before we do that, should we stay should we stay in Korea for a moment and um talk about the question of North Korea and the United States meeting because that's been in the news a little bit. Um okay, so staying on Korea, the only other kind of big news story that we've have coming up recently and one that perhaps we we should comment on is Kim Yo-jong saying that um, there won't be another, I mean, it's unlikely for another summit. Um, I think it's uh, a, a interesting for things. So this is something that we've had obviously conversations about, whether or not that there should be another summit, whether or not that there will be. What I find particularly interesting is the fact that it's her that's being said to have said it. Mm. Um, and um, it's, you know, irrespective of these things, it's, it's still a very rare statement. And that, um, that also was the other thing that she said was that North Korea won't be threatening the US. I guess the question, I mean, there's been this debate, hasn't there, over the last few weeks, suggestions that, um, so the suggestion first came out of the South, didn't it, that perhaps there ought to be another meeting between North Korea and the United States. The first noises out of the North suggested that wasn't, wasn't really on the cards. And then um, Donald Trump was asked about it, wasn't he, a few days ago, and said that he'd be, he'd be up for it. What kind of significance is this, do you think? My reading of this, and you're more of a Koreanist than I am, 
but my reading of this is that this tells us that the North has made the similar calculation to the one we've been talking about previously. Well, so they've made the same, they've made a calculation on the same basis that China has previously been making its calculation, which is that Trump is gone. And so there's no point. Um, it, it was uh, quite a big risk for Kim Jong-un to begin this process of engaging with Donald Trump. Um, I mean, I suppose what it did is it got him that those massive photo opportunities showing him as a as a genuine world leader um, and sitting down and having North Korea treated as a proper state in the international system, which is something that they've craved for some time. Um, but, there, I mean, there was always the risk that, I mean, maybe not so much in the country at large, but within the regime, that it, he would look like he's made mistakes in, in going in with the United States and getting nowhere. And they, they haven't really got anywhere out of this. Um, but pr probably the risk is greater for the United States president and any other president just simply wouldn't have done it because the benefits are really, really unclear and the risks are very, very high. Um, and uh, that's sort of what came to pass. So anyway, the point I was making is that um, Kim, I think, has worked out that there's little point in giving Donald Trump another photo op when the greatest chance is that he's not going to be president in a few months' time. He would only be doing it to help Donald Trump, and there's, he just doesn't have anything yeah. to gain from it, basically. No, that's it. I mean, I agree with you entirely on that. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, the the calculation is now that there is nothing to gain. Um, um, I'd be interesting to see whether or not that he starts to carry flavor, uh, favor, not flavor, with potential, you know, with Biden. Um, that might be an interesting thing to see whether or not that we do see anything. It'll be too hard. It'll be too hard for Biden to, to go down that path. I mean, sure. Um, um, it'd be interesting to see from a North Korean perspective whether or not that they make attempts to. Um, but I, I mean, I don't think that necessarily they will. I think um, we probably will see a return to the way in which the things were engaged under Obama years, but we'll yeah, uh, never know. I think that's what's going to happen. We're going to go back to how it was under Obama with very little direct engagement. Um, yeah. Biden can't really afford to be going down that path because it's such a Trump thing to do. And the whole point of Joe Biden is that he's not Donald Trump. The reason yeah, the reason that Biden has a double digit lead is because the U.S., the U.S. election has become a referendum on whether or not you think Donald Trump is sane. And so you couldn't possibly, even after you've won that election, you couldn't possibly follow one of his key flagship policies that no other president yeah. has ever followed. Because no, you're right. it's just contradictory. Yeah, no, so, I agree. I, yeah, I agree. You're right. You want to talk about the um, the story that is very closely related to your research. This is something that um, I don't know a great deal about. So educate me while I finish my noodles. Uh, no, it's a very kind of interesting story that um, that genetic studies have found of a Polynesian encounter with Native Americans. Obviously, they the genetics have put the date of 800 years ago, but anyone who works within Polynesia or Austronesian bilinguistically uh, migrations have 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 often argued that the the connections m must have happened much earlier. Um, this is this is really important. It's really important because obviously this has now consolidated research to to say that um, Polynesian 
Polynesian peoples um, had, I don't want to really want to, how, how had interacted with uh, Native American centuries before the European explorers had arrived. Um, and actually, this is a, a very important channel for the opening of future research. Um, because in particular in areas of which that I have looked at, which is looking at the Austronesian speakers from, from the basin in, in Taiwan, is that um, its interactions with, how do we say, like the old world, right, um, had always meant that it, it never, um, so you know about like the whole concept of like the Columbian exchange, right? Yeah, so the Columbian Exchange. So the Columbian Exchange um, or the Interchange was um, named obviously after Christopher Columbus and the widespread transfer of plants, populations, technology, but but more specifically diseases. We, we saw the arrival of smallpox amongst the Native Americans um, was, was catastrophic, right? So um, what we didn't see with with the case when Europeans arrived in Taiwan or Europeans arrived in the Philippines, we didn't see the similar thing, which was always um, often argued is that um, the indigenous populations or indigenous Austronesian populations of the islands of the Philippines and Taiwan had interactions with people um, within the kind of the main um, the Euro-Asia kind of con continent. So um, we didn't see the same level of things. But what's quite interesting, obviously, when we start exploring migration is that the interactions with the Americas would have been at, at, at certain points where actually, you know, those diseases weren't being carried on things. So it's opened up for many, many questions. Uh, it also solves one of the biggest questions that often have been asked is um, about the concept of the sweet potato and how the sweet potato made it to the um, Pacific Islands. Um, and this is a question that's gone back centuries really about the, how, and, and now we potentially have a source of how, how the potato, the potato very much a new world crop had actually made its way all the way to, to the the islands um, of uh, of Melanesia, um, but yeah, a um, lot of very interesting things going to come out of this 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 new this new finding. Is a sweet potato a concept? Oh, the concept of the migration of the sweet potato, <laughs> not the sweet potato itself, obviously. Sorry, it tickled me. I thought it was quite funny. The concept of the sweet potato. I mean, I ate sweet potato the other day. Uh, I'm confident that it's a thing. Obviously, I'm talking about the history, the migration of the sweet potato, how the sweet potato ended up on these islands I, when it is in New World. I probably. genuinely, I don't have any other friends who would manage to get seriously into a conversation that used the phrase, the migration of the sweet potato. And do you know what? Do you know what I appreciate the most out of that statement? It's the fact that you refer to me as a friend. I, I, oh, yeah. I, I Remember, I have an oddity today. Yes, uh, we'll come, we'll come to the oddity. oddity. I don't know what it is, and that's exciting. It better be good, mate. Oh, you want to talk about aggressive monkeys, mate? I want to talk about aggressive monkeys. So, one of the things I thought with this being our last part, it's quite fun to revisit some of the stuff that we talked about. We spent a large chunk of the beginning talking about Hong Kong, which was one of the very first things we talked about. That dominated the first few weeks of the pod. A few episodes ago, I can't remember when it was, but there was um, we had a series of uh, series of stories that were sent in by Kate. Kate, and one of the ones that she sent in was about um, the 
places in Thailand where monkeys were sort of able to take over whole pla- whole towns and whole cities because human beings were sort of locked down. And, and this was part of a, a wider narrative of uh, the planet, the e- ecosystem, kind of recovering or adjusting to life without human beings. And it was an interesting insight into what the world would be like if human beings disappeared. Um, of course, the lockdown has, in large parts of the world, including this one, come to an end. We didn't do a lockdown update. Maybe that's because there isn't a lockdown here anymore. Yeah. Oh, I still feel locked down. Okay. I went to the zoo. It was nice. Uh, anyway, uh, so so the lockdown is is coming to, has come to an end in large parts. So the problem is that we now have a clash that's taking place in Thailand. So it's in the province of Lotburi. Um, for people who can speak Thai, please forgive me for my pronunciation. Um, where there have been gangs, of, rival gangs of monkeys rampaging through cities. Um, and they're creating no-go areas for human beings. Part of this is they have been described in one report that I've just read as uh, sex-crazed monkeys <laughs> who are rapidly breeding but also in- engaged in quite unseemly activity across the city and, and making these places just nowhere that you could, you could go. Um, so the result is that human beings are fighting back and the authorities in these cities are now forcibly sterilizing the monkeys to prevent this from continuing. Um, So I thought parts of this are kind of funny because we get to use phrases like sex-crazed monkeys and rival monkey gangs, and that's kind of amusing. But but also what we have is a, a sort of clash of civilizations again isn't it we, we do and quite interesting would be you know in the the montagues and the capulets of the monkeys worlds um who who are humans siding with uh, do we have a preferred choice are we pitting one group against another are uh, you know divide you know, and rule the, divide and rule that's how colonialism always worked wasn't it absolutely yeah. this is not what we're doing now so who who are we are supporting the montague sex crazed monkeys or the capulet sex crazed monkey are we having the the interestingly and perhaps a monkey love story um in between cross families who knows <laughs> that's something to look out for sod it let's go straight to the oddity Nick, you have what is the last ever Pacific oddity. Go ahead. Okay, so this is a COVID-related oddity. Um, and it is going to one of our, our one of our favourites, should I say, or one of our popular locations of the, the oddity side of our podcast. So Japan, then. We're going to <laughs> Japan. Yes, so... Um, this is uh, this is going to be quite a roller coaster one, I believe. Um, and talking about roller coaster, this is that visitors to Japan's amusement park have been asked not to screen when riding roller coasters as a way of preventing the spread of coronavirus. Um, and equally, they are limiting football fans from singing, clapping, or waving scarves. Did you know about this? Now, I did see something the other day, actually, about uh, football f- football matches and other sports events in Japan where they'd got robots doing robot cheerleading <laughs> for this very reason. Yeah, yeah so, um, yeah, we're not allowed to scream on a roller coaster in Japan. Well, um, you see... Whilst, of course, that sounds a bit potty, uh, you can, I mean, this is, so something even pottier happened here the other week, when obviously the, this this uh, 
sort of slightly chaotic opening up of this country where every other day we get something new can happen. Like, you can get a tattoo on Monday, mate. I genuinely think I might go get a new tattoo. I've been thinking about getting a tattoo, actually. Should we both get the same one? <laughs> no. Let's, let's get a buddy tattoos. <laughs> right, let's just, what, the Ed and Nick? Yeah, get the Ed and Nick logo tattooed on us, yeah, to mark to mark this, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll think about it. Uh, the, the, so... The point is that uh, in trying to figure out how you can sort of, you can never do things completely safely, right? But you have to try to limit the risk. And that's where you get suggestions like, please don't scream on the roller coaster. It sounds mad, but actually that's one of the ways that we can reduce the risk slightly and therefore die. Well, so the government consulted with various interest groups in particular areas to see uh, how they might be able to facilitate the opening up of certain things, and this included in um, the theatre world, which has obviously struggled enormously since the lockdown. And one of the suggestions put forward to Andrew Lloyd Webber, who was part of the consultation group, was that musicals might be able to restart, but without any singing. <laughs> <laughs> very similar uh but i was quite interesting so they say like no screaming on the roller coaster but i think perhaps probably in the case of japan the worst possible thing that you can do is to say in english this is a pen (laughs) oh yes this indeed is a pen right i guess we should uh, think about how to wrap this up um good luck in your new endeavor thanks mate it's not really goodbye so much as i don't have to deal with you quite as much uh, so I think I would like to say that uh, although doing this podcast has taken up an enormous amount of my time, like way more, well, way more than yours, because I do all the editing, um, of all the things I've done in my job over the last 12 months, I, I haven't enjoyed anything else as much as this. So I'm really glad that we decided to do it, and um, I don't regret it at all. No, I would I would agree with you fully. It has been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, so this is the last one. We won't be doing any more of these, but we have said if something enormous happens, we might be tempted back to do one-off specials in the future. Yeah. But, um, uh, yeah. I mean, basically, yeah. we need China and Japan to go to war. Yeah, so world leaders, if you are listening um, and you want to keep this pod going, um, you're going to have to do something. You're going to have to up it. Yeah, so Kim... If you're a fan, you know what to do. Yeah. Well, this has been fun. Let's do it again sometime. We might not.